A couple of summers ago, I had a crisis of faith. Well, actually, I've never had faith. Um, <laughs> and it's not faith as it's commonly understood, a confident belief in propositions of fact. What I've had is more a feeling of trust in the goodness of the universe, which might or might not be expressed as a field of consciousness and a force for love, and which I've gradually over many years become comfortable calling, for want of a better word, God. But three summers ago, even this cautious intimation of divinity was devastated. It happened incongruously at a spiritual retreat, held still more incongruously at the Best Western Royal Trade Center a few miles west of here in Marlboro, just off Route 495. It was there that Sri Mata Amrita Anandamai, known to her followers as Ama Mata, or simply Ama, Mother, touched down on her world tour. Ama Mata has a global reputation as a living saint, an avatar, someone who embodies and expresses a radiant divinity and is able physically to transmit, if not enlightenment itself, then an energetic shove in that direction. Whereas other gurus offer this transmission by touch, gaze, or thought, Ama enfolds you in a maternal embrace, which she's been known to offer thousands of devotees in spiritual audience or darshan, lasting up to 16 hours at a time. Called the Hugging Saint of India, Amma has devoted her life to her teaching and vast charitable enterprise, including schools, hospitals, and disaster relief. A past president of the Parliament of the World's Religions, who has addressed the United Nations several times, Amma Mata seemed like the real deal. So when I heard she was coming to Marlboro, of all places, 20 minutes from the parsonage in Littleton, I signed right up for a three-day retreat. Modestly priced, I thought, at $200, vegetarian meals included. I arrived in time for supper, simple, wholesome, and delicately spiced. But I began to understand what I was in for when the last plate in the buffet contained leftovers, apparently from Amma's own meal, which I gathered were invited to share in order to partake of her spirit. I tried to keep an open mind. I knew that the Indian guru tradition entails devotion, surrender, even adoration of one's spiritual teacher as a kind of surrogate for the divine. As a New England Yankee, my tradition runs more along the lines of, don't tread on me. I didn't want cultural prejudice to keep me from a potentially life-changing encounter. But it got worse. Ubiquitous posters reminded me I could purchase a full-color photograph of myself with Amma for just $50. Virtual darshan, they called it. At first, I thought it was like an amusement park where someone snaps a photograph of each happy family at just the right moment they're coming down the, you know, the, the, the slide or the, or the, um, the, the ride. and you know, they, 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 slap, they, they take a picture, and then on your way out, you, you, you buy it, and it comes home. Um, but looking closer, I discovered that this darshan was even more virtual than I'd thought. It used to be called trick photography. For 50 bucks, my picture would be photoshopped together with Amas in a setting of my choosing. Amma hugging me, Amma paddling me in a canoe. 
Amma sitting next to me in a car, grinning and thumb extended back to me, as if to say, this is my bud. <laughs> Images of Amma were everywhere. Countless Amma, books, CDs, DVDs, CD-ROMs, photographs, wall calendars available for purchase. A table laden with bric-a-brac, from pillows to pen and pencil sets, or a sign testifying that all items for sale thereon had either been used by or given to Amma, including the petticoat she was wearing the day of the Asian tsunami in 2004. After this buildup, when Amma finally entered the hall, she seemed somehow smaller than life. The talk she gave, translated to English by a bearded Swami, was lovely but hardly groundbreaking. She spoke of love compassion, and service, and how the divine dwells in each of our hearts. But what really stuck with me was something the Swami said, introducing her. Amma is the embodiment of help, he said, and we are the embodiment of helplessness. Well, there was my problem. In a nutshell, I want to be humble, not helpless. If the divine dwells in my heart, in my heart, how can I be helpless? There's an old saying, you only need a guru to teach you, you don't need a guru. That didn't seem to, to be what Amamata was teaching. Or if she was, it, it wasn't getting through. Instead of helping her followers connect with their inner light and creative potential, she seemed to be fostering lifelong dependence on her. Despite these misgivings, I stayed for Darshan, picking up a numbered token that put me in queue with hundreds of others. When my turn came, I was ushered forward, and Amma gathered me into her perfumed embrace, letting go of resistance. I relaxed in her arms for nearly a minute while she cradled my head and uttered blessings, whether in Sanskrit or her native Malayalam, I'm sure how to pronounce this, Malayalam, Malayalam, and please let me know afterwards how to pronounce it, Malayalam, I didn't know. It was, it was a very nice hug. But I saw no celestial lights, heard no voices other than hers, Felt no awakening of spiritual energy, not then and not since. Indeed, my darshan with Amma had the opposite effect. Leaving the retreat, I found myself doubting not only Amma and her followers, but every religious impulse, every spiritual inspiration. For, for more than two decades, nearly every lecture, workshop, or retreat I'd attended on spirituality had broadened my horizons and invited me to seek further. This one sent me reeling backward. Years ago in grad school, I learned about the zone of acceptance so in communications theory. There's a zone of acceptance, the range of ideas each of us finds acceptable. If I hear an argument on the frontier of my zone of acceptance, but still within its borders, I'll say, sure, okay, I'll, I'll buy that. Not only do I accept the argument, but my whole zone of acceptance shifts in the, in the direction of the argument that I just heard. So 
The next more radical argument I hear, which might, I, I might have rejected before because it was outside my zone of acceptance, now it's within my new zone of acceptance. And I say, okay, I'll buy that too. And my zone of acceptance moves again. The, so I move incrementally toward more and more radical positions, provided I encounter them within my zone of acceptance. It works the same way in reverse. If I hear an argument outside my zone of acceptance, I say, no, no, can't go there, forget about it. That's too weird, outside my zone of acceptance. And then my whole zone of acceptance shifts in the opposite direction. And the next argument I hear along the same lines, which I might have agreed with before, I now reject because my zone of acceptance has retreated. And an opposite argument I would have rejected before, I can now accept. That's what happened to me after Amma. Because her retreat was outside my zone of acceptance. My whole zone shifted away, shifted in the opposite direction. I thought, maybe this whole spiritual thing is a lot of hooey. Maybe we are just a bunch of random atoms and neurons without meaning, without purpose, adrift, and alone. In this vulnerable state, I came upon an article by William Labell, religion reporter for the Los Angeles Times, headlined, Religion Beat Becomes a Test of Faith. I think it's actually now a book. Born-again Christian, Labdell had lobbied the LA Times for the religion beat so he could write more positive stories about religion. He began with feel-good pieces about spiritual fellowship and community service, but then he covered the Los Angeles clergy sexual abuse scandal, the cover-ups by the archdiocese, the denial among the faithful. He covered the prosperity gospel of televangelists who tell their viewers the more they donate, the more God will reward them with earthly riches. He covered faith healers who take money from people with permanent disabilities or terminal illness while promising them recovery that never materialized. After eight years on the religion beat William Lobdell, lost his faith and asked to be reassigned. Roomating over Lobdell's very personal and very powerful story, I felt the meaning drain out of my world. Maybe all my earnest spiritual exploration was just the desperate yearning of a child or a great cosmic mother who would hug me like Amma and make everything okay. Maybe it's all projection, all wishful thinking. Maybe the militant atheists have it exactly right. To clear my head, I jumped on a bicycle and started pedaling. It was a stunning summer Afternoon, the radiant sun in an azure sky illuminating nature resplendent below. Racing through countryside, I suddenly saw to my left a dazzling ray of loose strife pressing skyward out of the marsh, a riot of purple clamoring for the sun. What is this force of life that will not be dead? Whence comes this unquenchable will to grow and to thrive? What is this universal impulse by whatever name 
Later, Julie pointed out to me that Lucifer is an invasive species. But if anything, that proves my point. Life, life is unstoppable. Still bicycling, I reflected that people far wiser than I have devoted lifetimes to puzzling out the mystery of existence and reached no definitive conclusion. I don't have to figure it out right away. I don't have to figure it out at all. Attachment to any belief system, theistic or atheistic, is madness. Beliefs come and go, evolve, dissolve. The question I realized is not God or not God. The question is, do I say yes to life? Yes to wonder. Yes to mystery. Yes to connection. This yes is a yes not of belief, but of faith. Not optimism, but of hope. Not of desire, but of love. When I say no, I close the doors of possibility. When I say yes, I fling them open. Open to the wide, beautiful, unexpected world. Carl Jung spoke of embracing life with an unconditional yes, an acceptance of the conditions of existence, an acceptance of my own nature as I happen to be. This unconditional yes is an attitude, a practice, and a prayer. It changes us, and it changes the people and things around us. It is a posture of both serenity and courage in the face of triumph and calamity alike. No matter what happens to me, no matter what befalls my body, my family, my finances, my employment, my country, my environment, my belief system, my identity itself, I can say yes. Having said yes, I can ask, how can I learn from this? How can I grow wiser, braver, more peaceful? How can I serve? How can I love? What more powerful place, what more sacred ground can I occupy? The 16th century mystic John of the Cross, who endured poverty, persecution, and imprisonment, put it simply, where there is no love, put love, and you will find love. For me, the unconditional yes is to hold in one hand my yearning for God, in the other my doubt of God's existence, and bless them both. Dag Hammarskjöld was a brilliant Swedish economist. Lifelong calling to public service led him to the United Nations, where he was elected Secretary General in 1961, while negotiating a ceasefire in the Congo. 
Hammarskjöld was killed in a plane crash. His journal was published posthumously under the title Markings, the first entry for 1953, the year Hammarskjöld became Secretary General, makes a fitting epitaph for him, a reminder to us, and a song for the ages. Night is drawing nigh for all that has been thanks to all that shall be yes. Amen and blessed be.